0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damien Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein.
1: And I'm Rebecca Robbins.
0: It is Thursday,
1: October 15th, and
0: here's what we're going to talk about this week.
2: First up, we saw a rash of pauses to COVID-19 clinical trials. We discussed whether it's a cause for alarm or science playing out as normal.
1: Next, our colleague, Lev Fasher, joins us to talk about a first-of-its-kind analysis he conducted on the drug industry's spending to influence politics at the state level.
0: Then we'll talk to our STAT colleague, Nick St. Fleur, about the efforts by historically Black colleges and universities to bolster enrollment of Black people in COVID-19 vaccine trials and the backlash that work has triggered.
2: And finally, stick around for the end of the episode for a bittersweet announcement.
1: But first, a word about STAT+. Plus.
2: Enjoying the Read Out Loud? Subscribe to STAT+, Plus to get stories like these. STAT+, Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to StatPlus today at statnews.com/subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD. POD. This week, thanks to the COVID-19 crisis, the entire world got to ponder the implications of the word pause.
1: Lily's antibody trial has been paused over safety concerns just one day after Johnson and Johnson put its pause on its vaccine trial.
0: Right. So first on Monday, we learned that Johnson and Johnson had paused its 60,000 volunteer vaccine study after noting an unexplained illness in a trial participant. And then the very next day, we found out that the National Institutes of Health had paused a trial of an Eli Lilly COVID-19 treatment after observing different outcomes between the treatment group and the placebo group in that study.
1: So in the ensuing days, we've seen countless clinical trial experts telling the public that these two pauses should not be causes for alarm. In fact, they say people should be heartened by this news because it shows that the scientific process is playing out as it should, cautiously and methodically. But before we get to whether this is concerning, what do we know about what's actually happening here?
2: Yeah, Rebecca, you know, the answer to that question is, uh, unfortunately, not very much. In both the J&J and Lilly trials, the pauses came on the recommendation of what are called data safety and monitoring boards, or DSMBs. And these are groups of independent experts who keep tabs on the clinical trials to make sure that volunteers aren't put at undue risk. You know, in order to do that, they get to see raw data as it comes into the trial. But in order to preserve the validity of the study doctors patients and the drug companies have to stay blinded to who's getting the placebo and who's getting a vaccine or the drug
0: right so in the case of johnson and johnson we don't know whether this mystery illness happened to a volunteer who got the vaccine or who got the placebo and in lily's case we actually seem to know even less the nih said that the study reached a quote predefined boundary for safety, uh, which the agency didn't really go on to define. And it remains unclear whether this safety issue was with the patients who got Lily's antibody or the ones who received placebo. And in both cases, the trials can't unpause until the DSMBs convene to go over the data, which is planned for the coming weeks. So you know, we we really won't know anything uh, for a bit of time. And even when we do know something, we'll basically probably just learn whether the trials are allowed to continue or whether they remain on pause.
1: So the expert consensus seems to be that all of this is nothing to worry about. What do we think? Do we agree with that?
0: I mean, that will be
2: true if these pauses you know, basically don't amount to anything. And that that allows the studies to continue. We just don't have the answer to that question right now. You know, I think for a lot of us who write about clinical trials, you know, we're used to hearing about, unfortunately, sometimes about clinical trials being put on hold, right? If there's a safety issue and the FDA is alerted to it, the clinical trials are on hold. These pauses seem like they're different. They're not holds yet. They're pauses. And we don't really ever hear about pauses because sometimes these pauses, I keep saying that word, are brief and, and companies don't talk about them. But, you know, these COVID studies are under such scrutiny and every machination of the studies is being, you know, scrutinized and reported on. So now we're hearing about these things and where normally we wouldn't.
1: I think that's absolutely right, Adam. The amount of scrutiny and attention that these clinical trials are getting is magnifying things that wouldn't be remarked upon at all if this were a, uh, you know, kind of more standard clinical trial outside of, of a global crisis that's influencing everyone's lives. And I think the attention it's getting because there's so much interest and, and of course, need for for a, a vaccine that, that works and can get us out of this mess um, is, is sort of why this is getting so much oxygen and, and rightfully so much concern. But I think we need to get more information and, and, and wait this out before coming down one way or another.
2: And Damien, is there any indication of when
0: we're going to find out more about these pauses? Yes, but it's somewhat vague. So in the case of Johnson & Johnson, their DSMB has already met to look over this. And I guess we're just waiting on word to be handed down or handed up, as the case may be, to find out whether the trial will Unpause, and for Lily, the uh, DSMB in question is slated to meet on October 26th, and then we may find out, you know, sometime thereafter. It's an interesting situation because, you know, as we mentioned before, these independent monitors are independent, and so, you know, I may find it frustrating when, you know, Lily or J and J doesn't respond to an email with the level of detail that I would like. But in many cases, I don't think they actually have the answers, and I feel like maybe one of the only going forward things that we've learned from this week's kind of pausing experience is for other companies running clinical trials in COVID-19, prepare yourselves for something like this. Uh, You know, as people have said, this is kind of science playing out as normal and, and yada yada, and that's fine. But there is going to be an incredible amount of scrutiny on this. And I think that both companies might have benefited in terms of limiting confusion if they had had spring-loaded explanations of what DSMBs are, what they do, what they mean, what this stuff means. Because if you recall the Lilly thing, we kind of got this information in drips and drabs, starting with a screenshot of an email that went to doctors, and then a paragraph statement from Lilly, and then a longer statement from NIH, and then Lilly created like a web page to clear things up. If all of that had been ready to go once the news was out, I think everybody would feel a little bit more calm and content with this process. So we talk a lot on this podcast about the money that the drug industry spends to influence politics at the federal level. But what often gets less attention from us and elsewhere is pharma's expenditures at the
1: state level. So one of the reasons for this disparity in attention is that the data can be unwieldy and, and hard to come by in certain states. But our stat colleague, Lev Fasher, has been working on a project to shine a light on these contributions. He's been working in partnership with the National Institute on Money and Politics to provide a first-of-its-kind study of the drug industry's influence in state capitals.
2: Lev joins us to talk about his analysis. Lev, welcome back to the podcast.
0: Hi, everyone. Thank you. So, Lev, before we get into some of the data, what made you want to take on this particular project?
3: Well, it's that we've always been interested in the pharmaceutical industry's political influence, both via lobbying and via campaign contributions. But most of the time when we've written about those issues, we've done so at the federal level. That's where the data is both most accessible and kind of most impactful. You know, the pharmaceutical industry spends millions and millions of dollars lobbying Washington every year. And that's really the crux of our influence reporting. But there is just a wealth of data at the state level completely outside Washington that largely goes unexamined. It's kind of tough to access. There are 50 different disclosure databases in the 50 states for campaign contributions and lobbying disclosures. So we wanted to take really the first ever comprehensive look at drug industry spending on local lawmakers across all of the states in the current election, and that's why we're really excited about this state-level edition of Prescription Politics.
1: Lev, tell us your high-level findings. Were there some states that stood out?
3: Absolutely. So the top-line takeaway is that across the entire country, over one in four state lawmakers have cashed at least one check from a drug manufacturer or trade group in the last two years alone. That's a massive number of policymakers across the 50 states. It's 1,933 individual lawmakers— They've cashed collectively over 5,000 checks worth collectively over $5 million. And absolutely, there are some states where this kind of influence operation is much more prevalent than in others. Uh, Specifically, California stood out. There are 120 state lawmakers in all of California. 103 of them have accepted this type of contribution. That's uh, 85.8%, I believe. In Illinois, the number's about 79%. In other states like Oregon, Texas, Virginia, Louisiana, Uh, Somewhere between one half to two thirds of lawmakers have accepted drug industry campaign cash. Really, I think the biggest finding of this project is the scope of this giving. It's not that the amounts of money are absolutely massive, but the number of lawmakers and the number of states in which these companies and trade groups are giving is huge. And I think it's also worth stressing that a $1,000 check, a $2,500 check is worth so much more at the state level than in D.C. Some of these people, their whole reelection campaign costs $50,000, $100,000. So, you know, it's very easy for a couple of those pharma checks to end up totaling 10-15% of their campaign budget. It's really substantial money at this more local level. And Lev, when you talk about the
2: pharmaceutical industry making contributions to campaigns, what kind of entities are we talking about exactly?
3: Right. So for the sake of consistency, we used the same data set that we used for the federal version of this project, which we published a few months ago. Essentially, it is the top 23 US drug makers by revenue, and then the two major trade groups, pharma and bio. So that's a nice round 25 entities. Bio in this case actually didn't give in our database to state lawmakers. So essentially, it's pharma and 23 lawmakers large drug manufacturers. Pfizer was a huge giver, so was Eli Lilly, so was Merck. In many ways, it really mirrored the federal picture in terms of which drug makers and their affiliated political action committees were most aggressively giving to members of legislatures and uh, probably correspondingly, most aggressively lobbying those legislatures as well.
0: So over the past few years, we've seen a number of state houses take up legislation aimed at curbing drug prices or, or increasing transparency around prices. How did these contributions kind of dovetail with the drug industry's efforts to to kill those bills?
3: Dovetail is a good word because it's kind of with campaign finance, hard to say causally what's going on. Does money follow policymaking? Uh, Does money aim to thwart new bills? Does it aim to uh, prevent lawmakers from introducing legislation in the first place or or just to tweak bills to be a bit more favorable to the drug industry? It's really hard to put a fine point on that. It's actually something that political scientists have struggled with for decades. But uh, of course, there is a correlation between where there is substantial legislation happening that would impact the pharmaceutical industry and where the industry is giving most heavily. So California, Illinois, and Oregon in our database are the three states where the highest percentage of legislators accepted drug industry cash. And uh, it's probably not a coincidence that in California and Oregon especially, we've seen pretty aggressive recent legislation Uh, mostly to add new transparency requirements for drug manufacturers in terms of providing advance notice of price hikes, uh, justifying those price hikes in a public manner. And pharma, the trade group, has actually sued to strike down both of those laws. Uh, And the giving in 2018, 2019, 2020 does seem in many ways to, to match those legislatures' work on bills that the pharmaceutical industry was not a fan of.
1: Well, love, keep us posted on this issue. And thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: The presidents of two historically Black universities in New Orleans rolled up their sleeves, quite literally, to bolster the enrollment of Black people into COVID-19 vaccine clinical trials. In August, both men volunteered to participate in a COVID-19 vaccine clinical trial, and then they wrote a joint letter to their campus communities urging others to do the same.
2: Black Americans have been hit especially hard by the COVID-19 pandemic, so the letter urging participation in vaccine clinical trials was intended to be a public service. Instead, it sparked a backlash, running up against deep-seated distrust of medical research and pharmaceutical companies that exist within African-American communities.
0: Our colleague Nick St. Fleur wrote a story this week about the challenges faced by HBCUs when trying to address COVID-19, and he joins us now to discuss. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you all so much for welcoming me. I'm happy to be here.
1: So the college presidents we mentioned above are from Xavier University and Dillard University. Tell us more about what they did and why.
4: Right. As you mentioned, there is President uh, Ronald Verrett from Xavier University of Louisiana and Walter Kimbrough from Dillard University. So both of them had been seeing kind of the, uh, the destruction happening, um, from COVID-19 and how it has been disproportionately affecting, uh, communities of color, especially black communities. President Kimbrough had said to me, uh, he just remembers watching the news, seeing people like, uh, Anthony Fauci saying how when it's time for a vaccine to come out, we need a number of black people to be a part of the, um, vaccine clinical trials just to, ensure that these vaccines, when they do roll out, that they work on Black people and that there aren't any side effects that we aren't aware of. Historically, it has been tough to recruit Black Americans in clinical trials. And a lot of that has to do with a history and a a legacy of distrust of the medical community due to issues of, I guess you can say, medical racism. So what both of these presidents did was they decided to enroll in clinical trials and they figured you know there aren't a lot of black people in these we're both two black men um We should go ahead and enroll ourselves. And then both of them decided to write this joint letter to their faculty, their staff, their students and their alumni saying, hey, you know, there aren't a lot of black folk in these clinical trials. They need black folk. We just did it. We'd encourage you guys to maybe consider doing it
0: yourselves. So you spoke to some students about their reactions having read the letter. What did they tell you?
4: Yeah. Before I kind of get into what those students said to me, I think we need to talk a little bit about the reaction that these presidents received from hundreds of students, um, alumni, and other people in the community. Uh, the backlash was swift. You had people who were calling them sellouts. You had people saying, you know, our children are not lab rats for drug companies. Um, people saying, you know, we, we remember what happened with Tuskegee. One person saying, you know, Tuskegee, Tuskegee, me and mine aren't first in line. Uh, you had people saying, I can't believe an HBCU would do this to our people. I spoke to some students, um, some of which had different views. So I spoke with Miles Bartholomew. He is a 2020 graduate from Xavier. And what he had said is that he understands from a researcher's perspective why Um, getting black people to enroll in these clinical trials is necessary. Now, Miles is completing his PhD over at Brown University, uh, and he's studying molecular biology, cellular biology, and biochemistry. And he said, you know, the presidents are acting unselfishly. Um, Yeah, we know that we need to have more black people in these clinical trials. Black people are, you know, disproportionately affected by COVID-19. They make up a a higher number of frontline workers. So we understand that Black people need this. Um, And Miles was saying, as a researcher, I understand that. But as a student, you know, there's a lot of panic and trepidation about anything related to COVID right now. And he was saying how, you know, because of the history that African-Americans have had with medical research, um, it would be naive to really ignore those precedents that have already been set, um, because many of those are are horror stories, as he said.
1: So in your story, you mentioned that four other historically Black medical colleges are also preparing to host COVID-19 vaccine clinical trials. Are they doing anything differently to address this kind of skepticism?
4: Right now, they're in the stages of educating people. They've been working in these communities for a long time they have what they believe is the trust of these communities. So they are hoping that they can leverage that that legacy of trust in those communities to get people to enroll in these clinical trials. Black Americans are disproportionately affected by COVID-19. So when the vaccine comes out, we want to make sure that they don't have any kind of adverse reactions to the vaccine. And A big question that um, a lot of these presidents, as well as other doctors, are addressing is the question of, well, why can't you just have, you know, white people do this, do the vaccine trials? Aren't our biologies the same? There shouldn't be, you know, any big differences. And yes, genetically, um, you know, all people are all very similar. But the issue here is legacies of environmental racism that might have taken effect on uh, black communities, you know, like air pollution. A lot of that has causes changes in people's bodies that may cause them to react differently to different types of treatments. And this is something that we would find out through clinical trials. So they need a good portion of black people, brown people in these trials to make sure that once a vaccine does work, when it's rolled out to, you know, the whole country, that there aren't pockets or communities of people who we have no idea how this will affect them. Nick, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
0: Okay. So now do the I. I'm doing this is real loud, and then go. Well, if I do, if I introduce the name of it first, then introduce myself, it's a nat- more natural segue yeah. to you guys introducing yourselves. You want to go second?
1: Uh, sure, yeah. Okay, I'll go, go second. Ahead.
0: Welcome to the Read Out Loud. I'm Damian Garde.
1: I'm Rebecca Robbins.
0: And I'm Adam Feuerstein.
1: Ah!
0: <laughs> <laughs> God, that's awful. So that sound comes to you from way back in 2018, when we were stumbling through pilot episodes of what would become this podcast. And we are wistfully revisiting it now in 2020, because sadly, this will be Rebecca Robbins' last appearance on The Read Out Loud, at least as a co-host.
2: That's right, Damien. Rebecca is leaving Stat at the end of the week uh, for a new and exciting reporting job at...
1: So it is true. I am very sad to be leaving Stat and Damien and Adam as such great co-hosts on the Readout Loud. I will remain a devoted listener of this show every week. Um, I also want to clear up why we are bleeping out my uh, future employer. Uh, it is not a state secret. I just don't want to be one of those very annoying people on Twitter that like drags out their personal news for days on end. I'm just waiting for. To put out a statement so that that can just be like one day of personal news and then we'll just be done with it.
2: And let me just say Rebecca is very lucky to have you.
0: So Rebecca it should go without saying that we likewise will miss you dearly and we can get to maybe more of that in a second but first let's hear from a few friends of the podcast who wanted to share their well wishes.
1: This is Eric Topol at Scripps Research. I've had the sheer uh, delight to talked to rebecca robbins many times over the years that she's been at stat news what an all-star she is uh, a phenomenon that i work with on uh, such interesting stories as patrick soon chung and uh, many other behind the scenes uh, uh, reports that she put together Um, she's amazing and wishing her all the best in her new gig Oh my gosh, that is so nice. I can't believe you guys solicited this.
2: Oh, it's not over, Rebecca. There's more. Hey,
0: Rebecca, this is Josiah Zaner. Uh, Some people might know me as the most loved scientist on the internet. But I just wanted to congratulate you on your new job and wish you well as you depart. And provide you with a few words of wisdom that will help you in your future. Remember that a tall tree has many leaves but they all fall off and die eventually. Wait, am I going to die? Is that what Josiah is, is warning me? I mean, I, yes, aren't we all, I guess? I hope this isn't how you found out.
1: <laughs> that was incredible. I cannot believe you guys <laughs> solicited this. This is so nice.
2: And uh, we thought that, you know, as part of this farewell, we should uh, kind of address, you know, the fact that, you know, you you joined STAT at its very beginnings. So uh, let's just listen to this next clip.
5: Hi, this is Stephanie Simon, and I was Rebecca's editor for about three years. Um, So I remember the day we hired Rebecca. We had asked all the candidates for STAT reporting jobs to send us a memo of story ideas. And most people sent in, you know, maybe four or five. Rebecca sent us like 10, and they were all awesome. So we brought her in for an interview and that was back when the entire stat operation was just me and Rick in an office with a dead plant. Um, Rebecca came in, completely impressed us, just blew us away. So we had already decided we were going to hire her, but less than it seemed like 20 minutes later, we get a ping in our emails. We look and she had not only sent a thank you note, but she had attached an absolutely glowing letter of reference from her previous editor. And she had taken her top three story ideas and fleshed them out as full outlines with a list of who she would interview and the data she would try to find and how she would frame the story and everything else. So I remember Rick and I just looked at each other and we said, in five years, she's gonna run this place. And you just proved to be every bit as awesome as we knew you would be, Rebecca. So congratulations on the new job. I'm not gonna say good luck because you don't need luck, you're amazing. Um, But I am gonna say have fun and go get them, congrats. That
1: is so nice.
2: Gee, Rebecca, you really you really went hardcore trying to get
0: this job at Stat. <laughs> Damn.
1: I did. I really wanted that job.
0: <laughs> All right. I think there's one last one.
3: This is Rick
2: Burke. I'm the executive editor of Stat. I dug out those story pitches from April twenty fifteen that Stephanie mentioned. Let me tell you what they are. Why are the life sciences and software industries butting heads? in the fight against patent trolls. Why it matters that there's no patient group for the flu. How do life sciences startups negotiate the hiring paradox? Now these were from Rebecca Robbins who was barely out of college and we reached out to her out of the blue saying we're starting this startup called STAT. This is why Rebecca is such a very special talent who has been so important to STAT and we wish her only the
5: best.
1: So that was very nice of Rick. It is really funny to hear those ideas with five plus years of actual experience (laughs) now, because at the time that I came up with them, I was like Googling around and like knew absolutely nothing. And most of them are like kind of bad, and I would like cringe (laughs) at the idea of pitching them now. But the one that did seem like a decent idea is the why it matters that there isn't a patient group for the flu. Like, I feel like that's an actually interesting angle.
2: Well, you know, I think we want that story.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Can we catch up? What is the hiring paradox? I have no idea what the hiring paradox is. <laughs> Couldn't tell you.
0: <laughs> well, yes. Thank you to all of the friends of the podcast who who contributed. And, and uh, you know, we've said this a hundred times already, but Rebecca, we'll miss you. Very dearly. It's been wonderful to, to work with you these past, I guess, nearly five years for me and then the uh, the entirety of this podcast. I don't know how, you know, your contributions to it are, are um, irreplaceable.
2: And I will echo Damien's sentiments. Uh, you know, Rebecca, you, you've you been great. You've been great on this podcast. You've been as great as a colleague at STAT all these years. And uh, we will truly miss you here. And, and of course, um, whenever you break a great story at the... We're going to have you back as a guest. On the Read Out Loud.
1: Well, thank you both. I've loved working with both of you and have learned so much uh, doing this podcast. It's been uh, so wonderful to uh, wake up very early every uh, Thursday morning. Um, And it's been great working too with Hyacinth Empanado, our producer, who makes me sound much better uh, with editing and in producing than I actually sound in real life. Um, so thank you all. Um, I'm going to miss you very much.
5: This is Hyacinth chiming in. Rebecca, thank you so much for all your hard work with this podcast. You know, we
1: started around the same time five years ago, and I remember thinking, wow, she is such a machine. You've been such a machine with your stories, and in the podcast as well, you've saved our butts so many times, and I'm truly grateful for all the work you've done. Best of luck. at I'm sure you'll be amazing. Well, I look forward to becoming a loyal listener of this podcast. I won't miss a single episode.
0: That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Ebonato, who produced this week's episode.
1: Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer.
2: We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode and what you didn't like. And maybe share some of your favorite Rebecca moments from the podcast. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com.
1: And if you like what we do, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.